I remember as a child that Christmas took forever to arrive. It felt like an eternity from the day we decorated the house till the morning when we could open up all the presents under the tree. Christmas has always been a monumental event. The fact of the matter is that all of human history is divided in two based upon the coming of Christ. Every historical event is dated either BC before Christ or AD Anno Domini, which is a Latin phrase meaning in the year of our Lord. But everything is seen in its connection to when it takes place from the coming of Christ. So as children, we would reluctantly count down to Christmas. This morning, I want us to take a step away from the study of Mark's gospel and begin a four-week sermon series entitled The Countdown to Christmas. I want us to begin our countdown 4,000 years before Christmas. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 24. As you're turning there, let me say I realize that some of you just might not agree with me and my math. Because I said 4,000 years ago places us in Genesis chapter 3, which is the Garden of Eden. If you ask people how old is the earth, you'll get a wide range of answers. If you ask people how long has this blue marble been hanging as the third rock from the sun, there are many in the scientific community and beyond that will say the age of the earth is at least four and a half billion years old. If you ask, well, how long have humans inhabited the earth? That answer will range from 200,000 years to 2.5 million years. When I read that, I must confess, I'm not convinced. According to the biblical record, it seems that the biblical author affirms a young earth versus an old earth. I realize that trying to date the universal history of Genesis chapters 1 to 11 is difficult and problematic. But once we begin with the patriarchal history of Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 50, everybody in the church and outside the church has to agree that the biblical author begins in Genesis 12 somewhere around 2166 BC with the life of Abraham. And from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 50, there's a story of four patriarchs. It is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And it all has to begin at 2166 BC and then move forward. So then if you backdate from Genesis 11 to Genesis 1, even a generous rendering of that places the age of the earth somewhere around 6,000 to 20,000 years old. I understand there's a, a discrepancy there, 6,000 to 20,000. But that's a far cry from 4.5 billion years old. So because of at least that reason, I would affirm the biblical record. I would affirm what the biblical author says, that 4,000 years before Christmas places us in the Garden of Eden. And now that we've taken about a minute to resolve an age-old debate of how old is the earth, 
Now let's take our Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 24. Once you've found your spot, let's stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Genesis chapter 3. Let me begin at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you'll die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated.
In the preceding passage, we are told for the very first time in all the sacred script that something is not good. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. Therefore, I'll make a suitable helper for him. Up until Genesis 2.18, everything God made had been declared good. But we come to that verse, it is the Lord who deems that it is not good for man to be alone. For God to say that something is not good is not to say that God made a mistake. He just pushes the divine pause button so that all of us can take note of the magnitude of the moment. It is not good for man to be alone. Stamped into humanity is a desire for community. Every person needs companionship. This is revealed to us in the Trinity. God has always existed as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Never has God been alone. Never has God been alone in the sense of not having himself with himself. He has always existed in sweet Trinitarian community. And this idea of companionship, he stamps upon humanity. So God makes marriage to fulfill one of the primary needs of humans. It's one of companionship. Now, for us to say that throughout the ages, God's people have always affirmed marriage by God's design, it doesn't mean that everybody needs to get married. In the New Testament, Paul speaks that some have the gift of singleness. And if you are a person who has the gift of singleness, then you do not need to get married. But even if you have the gift of singleness, you still need community in your life. It is the devil who tries to lure us away from community and companionship. You can be in a crowded room and still be isolated. You can have a thousand friends and a thousand followers and still be isolated. God does not want us to be isolated and insulated from others. God wants us to have companionship. And even to the individuals that he gives the gift of singleness, there is a need for community. As God's people, we affirm marriage by God's design. That doesn't mean everybody has to get married. It also does not mean that you can define marriage however you want to. No, God gets to define it. Why? Because he created it. It is his building block upon which every civilization is built. This is the first institution known to man. God made marriage before he made the church. God made marriage before he made government. God made marriage even before original sin was introduced into society. Marriage is the building block of every human society. And it's God, the maker, who gets to define what marriage is. And marriage is defined by God as a man and a woman living together in holy matrimony till death do them part. So God realized that it is not good for Adam to be alone. Therefore, he made a suitable helper. Adam was trying to go at life all by himself. So the Lord paraded all the animals in front of Adam for him to name. The reason he did this is twofold. For starters, the divine zookeeper wanted Adam to have authority over all the created order. In antiquity, it was believed that if you name something, then you have authority over that which was named. 
We still do this at some degree today. Let me give you one quick example. When a child is born, it's the responsibility of mom and dad to name that child. Why? Because parents have authority over their children. It's not the doctor's job to deliver the baby and then name the baby as if to look at mom and dad and say, you know what? This one looks like a Steve. This one looks like a Charles. Or this one looks like a Sally. Or this one looks like a Jennifer. No, it is not the responsibility of the doctor to name your children. It is your responsibility. Why? Because you have authority over your children. And the first act of authority that you have over your children is that you have the right and privilege of naming your son or daughter. So all the animals are paraded in front of Adam for Adam to name them. And by naming them, he is claiming dominion or authority over all the created order. There's a second reason why God paraded the animals in front of Adam. And the second reason was this. He wanted Adam to take note that there was no suitable helper in existence for Adam. Adam's a smart dude. He's pretty quick. He's intuitive. He realizes that for every male, there's a female counterpart. There's Mr. Lobster and there's Mrs. Lobster. Mr. Horsefly and Mrs. Horsefly. There's Mr. Sparrow and there's Mrs. Sparrow. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. In both the Hebrew language and the English language, that phrase is a two-word phrase, suitable helper. The word suitable means similar or of like kind. The word helper is a word that communicates role or function. And it literally means to aid or support. So for Adam to conclude that there's no suitable helper, what he's saying is there is nobody here. There is nothing that's yet been created that can help me fulfill my divine purpose. And Adam's divine purpose was to uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the created order. And Adam says, I cannot do that by myself. I cannot do that in isolation. And everything God has yet made cannot help me in being fruitful and multiply filling the earth and subduing it. There's no suitable helper. In other words, Eve was indispensable to Adam. And Adam was indispensable to Eve. Adam quickly concluded, I cannot live without Eve. And Eve also understood, I cannot live and fulfill my God-given function without Adam. Husbands and wives, let me just pause right here and ask you, when was the last time you said to your spouse, baby, I can't live without you? I realize that there may be few times, more than a few, when you say, I can't live with you. But I'm asking, when was the last time you said to your spouse, I can't live without you? You are indispensable to me. Wives, when the Bible calls you a suitable helper, that's not a derogatory term. That's not something to be understood as inferior or insignificant. Because Adam could not live without Eve. Eve could not live without Adam. And so God's people, whether you are single or married, whether you are divorced or widowed, all of God's people throughout the ages have affirmed marriage by God's design. And marriage has been created by God for a man and a woman to live together in holy matrimony. It is God who 
caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He performed the very first surgical known to man. And God took one of Adam's ribs and from it, he made woman. Then he closed up the place with flesh. I'm sure that there were times when Adam called Eve my pride and joy, the apple of my eye. But I'm convinced more times than not, he just called her my prime rib. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) It's not insignificant that God took a rib to make the woman. Everything else in humanity is made out of the scum of the earth. Man was made from the dust of the earth. God breathed into his nostrils and he became a living creature. Man is made out of dust and dirt, the scum of the earth. Oh, but not woman. The primary ingredient for making the woman was the rib that was taken out of Adam's side. And the Bible says that God made Eve as a suitable helper for Adam. That word make can also be rendered built. And more times than not in the Hebrew text, when this specific verb is used, it's referencing building a house. And certainly when God built Eve, he built one fine house. And I can imagine, I think I'm right in this, that when God woke Adam up from his surgical slumber and he saw Eve for the very first time, I think that in the background, he heard the 1977 Commodore hit. You can sing it with me. She's a brick house. Mighty, mighty, letting it all hang out. She's a brick house. I'm, so, I'm certain that that's what Adam heard. Adam added his own lyrics to the, to the line, though. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. In God's sovereignty, God said the first woman will be taken out of man, but every man henceforth will be taken out of woman in childbirth. God is a beautiful orchestrator of life. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. You get to the end of Genesis 2. There's nothing gross, nothing degrading about the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Completely vulnerable, completely transparent. There's nothing uncomfortable, nothing nerve-wracking. There's nothing dirty about it. And God gave to Adam and Eve the gift of sexual intimacy. The sex act was given to the husband and wife for two reasons. One is for procreation. Remember the God-given purpose to Adam and Eve. Fill the earth and subdue it. You are to replicate. You are to reproduce. The only way for humans to reproduce is for a man and a woman to hook up, right? That's the only way for humans to reproduce. And God says this sex act is placed in the boundary of marriage. Marriage by my design. 
So the first reason that God gave sexual intimacy to a husband and wife was for procreation. But there's a second reason. The second reason is pleasure. We don't often talk about that in the church. Tragically, it makes people squirm, makes people nervous a bit. But the reality is that God gave the sex act to a husband and a wife for their pleasure. It is a good gift that God has given. It is a sacred gift that God has given. I thought at some point I'd get a hearty amen, but everybody's just staring at me. You say, pastor, I don't see that in Genesis two or three, this whole idea of pleasure. Well, it may not be in Genesis two and three, but God does weave this all throughout the sacred script. So you go to a place like Proverbs chapter five. This is Solomon talking to his son. Now, even Solomon, who had 700 wives and 300 concubines in the first service, almost called them porcupines, but (laughs) Solomon had about a thousand women at his disposal at any time. And yet even Solomon says to his son, marriage by God's design is a man and a woman for life. So, so don't go down the adulterous road. It never ends well. This is marriage by God's design. You come to Proverbs chapter five. This is what Solomon says to his son. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. In Song of Songs, chapter four, this is what the husband says to his wife. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from their washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. In other words, what the husband is saying to his wife is, baby, you're beautiful because you got all your teeth. (laughs) Each one has its twin. And that's beautiful. That's great. He goes on to say, your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like two fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. All beauty, you are my darling. There is no flaw in you. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, is that really in the Bible? Are you just making that up? No, it's right there. And those of you are saying Song of Songs is now my favorite book. (laughs) But seriously, husband and wife, when was the last time you said to your spouse, there is no flaw in you? Oh, it is easy for us to find flaws in other people, especially the people we live with. It is easy to see the flaws in your wife and to see the flaws in your husband. Oh, but in Song of Songs, 
the lover, the husband says to his wife, there is no flaw in you. When was the last time you said to your spouse, darling, there is no flaw in you. This is marriage by God's design. Marriage between a man and a woman. Marriage where the sex act is given for procreation and for pleasure. Let me say that whenever the sex act is taken outside of the boundaries of marriage, whether it's premarital, whether it's extramarital, whether it's even postmarital, whenever it's taken outside of God's design, there is always destruction that results. Always. I have never seen an adulterous affair work out well. Never. I've been a pastor for 18, 20 years. I've seen men and I've seen women engage in adulterous affairs, deteriorate their marriage, and I have never seen it work out well, ever. Because it's not by God's design. Sex is a beautiful gift. Intimacy is a wonderful thing to be given to a husband and a wife, never to be taken outside of the marriage bed. This is by God's design. So you think to yourself, why is there so much pandemonium in our hearts, in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, in our lives? Why is there so much pandemonium? God is so good. He's a good, good father. And he created this good thing called marriage and he gave it to a man and a woman. And, and, and marriage by God's design is a good thing. And even for marriages that are trying to live out the marriage culture of God, it's still difficult sometimes. And there's conflict and there's pandemonium. And you ask yourself the question, why? Isn't it supposed to be simple? Isn't it supposed to be easy? I mean, if we live the way God wants us to live, isn't it supposed to be blessed? Why is life so full of chaos and pandemonium? And the answer is given in our passage. Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was the most crafty of all the wild animals. He came up to Eve asking the question, did God say that you cannot eat from any tree here in the garden? And Eve corrected that slithery serpent. Oh no, we can eat from any tree in the garden except for those in the middle of the garden. And then she added her own commentary. We can't even touch it lest we die. You will not die, chided the serpent. If you go up there and touch that tree, you're not gonna die. In fact... Even if you ate the fruit from that tree, you wouldn't die either. God's holding out on you. If you eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. You'll be able to discern and know good from evil. God is intimidated by you. And God is just trying to keep you down. So, when Eve saw that the food was good and it was desirable and pleasurable to the eye and for gaining knowledge, she took some and she ate. Original sin is the desire for godly wisdom independent of God. That's the original sin. 
It's, it's wanting to be God without having God in your life. The heartbeat of sin is selfishness. And individuals who are totally touched and tainted by sin say, I want godly wisdom, but I just want to get it my own way. I want to be my own boss. I want to be my own God. I want to live life as if God doesn't exist. And so original sin is trying to attain godly wisdom independent of God. It's trying to, to, to be your own deity. Now, if you ever wonder, where was Adam while all this was going on? Well, I'll tell you this much. He was not taming a tiger. He wasn't chasing a cheetah. No, the scripture says he was silent on the sidelines. He was right there beside her. You say, Pastor, how do you know he's beside her? Just read the sacred script. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, Adam was the man of God who had been given the word of God. And that word of God given to the man of God was supposed to be dispensed to the family of God. He was supposed to be the spiritual leader. He was supposed to instruct his wife. And he did instruct her by telling her uh, that she was not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. And he was also supposed to cascade that truth on to his future children. But in this moment, when the serpent is, is tempting them, and when Eve is standing there, he never once speaks. He stands there in silence. And men, we've been guilty of this for 4,000 years, 6,000 years. We've been guilty of this standing on the sidelines in silence. Had Eve asked her husband, do you think this is a good idea? He might have given her a grunt. Mm -hmm. Right? Your husband comes in. How was your day? Mm -hmm. What do you want for dinner? I don't know. Uh, what do you think we need to do with the children? I don't know. I mean, it's just kind of that, you know, that sideline conversation. I don't know. And had she asked Adam, do you think I need to do this? He would have just given an occasional grunt. He was there, but he abdicated his responsibility as a spiritual leader of the house. And so she ate and she gave it to her husband and he ate as well. Their eyes were opened. They did know right from wrong. And their disobedience brought mortality. The way God sets everything up, obedience leads to life. Disobedience always results in death. By them being disobedient to God, it was a high risk, terrible reward. They took upon themselves mortality. For the first time, they looked at each other and they realized they were naked. And for the first time, this was embarrassing this was gross and they tried to hide themselves so they sewed fig leaves together and covered up the parts of their bodies that were different from each other and then they went into hiding because they heard God walking in the cool of the day this was not uncommon God every day walked in the cool of the day he was right there with his uh with Adam and Eve he was right there in the garden of Eden every single day but on this day when they heard God walking they ran and they hid where are you God asked and the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God does not have to ask Adam, where are you for God's sake? He asked it for Adam's sake. Adam, do you know where you are? Do you know what just happened? Do you know what the consequences will be? Adam, where are you? I was afraid. I was naked. 
so I hid. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the forbidden fruit? And then they began to play the blame game. It is not my fault. It is her fault. Uh, This woman. And also I want you to note that Adam, he's so brilliant. He not only blames her, but he also blames God. It's the woman that you put here. Therefore, from my vantage point, God, you have something to say in this as well. It's not only, it's not my fault, but it's Eve's fault. And God, it's your fault. I am completely out of the picture right now because I, I carry no responsibility here. It is Eve's fault and it's your fault. Had you not put her here, this wouldn't have happened. I was doing quite well all by myself. Eve? What have you done? Whoa, you're not going to pin this on me. It is not my fault. It's the serpent's fault. He placed this fruit before me and I ate it. But then, but then, but then I gave some to my husband. He could have said, no, I didn't make him eat it, but he took it willingly. He took it voluntarily and he ate it and he ate more than I did. (laughs) And God says, because of what you've done, There's going to be pain. Friends, disobedience always brings pain. It always does. Whenever we sin against God, against others, against ourselves, whenever we sin, the end result is always pain. I wish I could get that through my thick skull and my hard heart. And I wish you could too. Because your skull's as thick as mine. And your heart can be as hard as mine. And I wish that before whatever the dirty deed may be, before we ever get there, before we ever do, I wish that we would just stop and say, you know what? This is going to bring some pain. But we don't, do we? It is God who cursed the serpent and cursed the ground. God could have cursed Adam and Eve. But in his love, he didn't. Because God is loving, he disciplined Adam and disciplined Eve. He said to them, I will increase your pain because of your disobedience. It's not that I want to, it's just the end result. So Eve, there will be pain in childbirth. Your desire will be for your husband. Adam, there will be pain in your labor as well as you Work the soil. By the sweat of your brow, you will eke out existence from thorn-infested ground. Regardless, there's going to be pain. Pain in childbirth, which is the fulfillment of God's great command to the husband and the wife. And there's going to be pain in your home. The Lord says um, to Eve, your desire will be for your husband. And if that's punishment, what does it mean when God says your desire will be for your husband? Some have said it's sexual desire. Friends, it can't be sexual desire. Sexual desire is not a bad thing. Okay, you missed it right there. You could have said a hearty amen. Okay, that's over two, guys and gals. Listen, sexual desire is not a bad thing. It cannot mean sexual desire because the sex act was given to the husband and wife as a sacred gift. So for God to then turn around in chapter three and say to Eve, because of punishment, then your desire will be for your husband. It can't be that your desire sexually for your husband is a bad thing. So what does desire mean? This Hebrew word means a desire to rule. 
a desire to have dominion. Let's put the cookies on a bottom shelf. A desire to boss your husband. So in the home, there'll be pain. There will be a tug of war match between the leadership of the husband and the wife. As a result of sin, there'll be a tug of war match in every marriage. Who's in control? Who's in charge? Who's leading this thing? And the wife will strive to usurp the God-given responsibility of her husband and the husband will abdicate his role as a spiritual leader and there'll be constant warfare and tug of war matches that go on and sometimes the wife will boss her husband and other times the husband will try to lord leadership over his wife and ungodly ways and other times he'll just be sidelined in silence and still even other times he will just give himself to work and be a workaholic and be away from the home and if you ask him why do you do that that husband will tell you I work so much my identity is wrapped up in my work my self-esteem is wrapped up in what I do For if you ask me who I am, I'll tell you what I do. And because that's my identity, my work. And if you ask him, why do you work so much? The Christian man will say, to provide for my family. But if you press him on it, he'll say, because if I'm at work, I don't have to deal with the drama at home. Because of the tug of war that goes on. All of this is because of sin. The pain that comes from mortality, the pain that comes from disobedience unto God. So there's going to be pain in childbirth. There'll be pain in the home. There's going to be pain as Adam works to eke out a living and an existence. By the sweat of his brow, he'll have to work with thorns and thistles that weren't there before. But now because of sin and disobedience, there are weeds and even the ground is touched and tainted. Even creation even the, the, the weather patterns, everything is tainted because of sin. The Lord says in chapter 3, verse 15, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. That word offspring is better understood as seed, and seed is singular. I will put enmity, which is uh, warlike hostility. I will put a great deal of, of hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Her seed will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Theologians have called that ambiguous verse tucked right there in chapter three, verse 15 as the proto euangelion. You say, what does that mean? Proto means prototype. Euangelion means gospel. So Genesis 3.15 is a uh, foreshadowing of the Christian gospel. It's it's what's going to take place at Calvary. And all throughout the Bible, only Jesus is referred to as the seed singular of the woman. And so at at Calvary, Jesus will crush the serpent's head. And at Calvary, uh, it is Satan who will nip or strike or crush at the heel of Jesus. So he will inflict some pain in the life of Jesus, but Jesus will bear our sin. He will be placed in our grave. On the third day, he will burst forth from the tomb. And I can just visualize at the first step out of that tomb, he is crushing the serpent's head because Jesus is victorious. So 4,000 years before Christmas, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God is thinking about Christmas and Easter. In fact, I would say God has always been thinking about Christmas and Easter. 
In Revelation chapter 13, verse eight, John says, behold the lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. This slain savior is the resurrected Christ who will rule and reign forever and ever and ever and ever. This has been on God's mind for all of eternity before time even began. It is not that Genesis 3 caught God off guard. God knew what was going to go on. He knew the sin was going to be introduced. And so Jesus is plan A and there ain't no plan B when it comes to salvation of lost sinners. So that our friend Reginald Calvert says that when Jesus came to earth, he was a cross-eyed baby. Because the moment he stepped foot on earth, he always had his eyes on the cross. He was one cross-eyed baby. Because Jesus was so preoccupied about going to the cross for your sins and for mine. 4,000 years before Christmas, God's thinking about Calvary. For eternity past, God's thinking about Calvary. And if God thinks about Calvary that long, he also thinks about you that long. He's been thinking about you from eternity past because he knew that Jesus would die for all of your sins and he knew every sin you would ever commit, past, present, and future. And he knew that Jesus would be your sole savior for both now and forevermore. In Genesis 3, 21, It is the Lord who made garments of skin for Adam and Eve. In our story, this reminds us and implies that it is God who offers the first sacrifice. Once again, that's a prototype of Jesus. That Jesus will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And and God made garments of skin. So he sacrificed the animal and then he clothed them with the skin of that animal. Because God said, uh, your little uh, fig leaves, uh, come one mighty gust of wind, they blow away, all right? So you need something more durable than uh, just a couple of fig leaves. So he made them garments. Friend, every time you put on clothes, it ought to remind you of your sinfulness. I mean, the only reason we wear clothes is because we're utterly sinful. Our wardrobe reveals our waywardness. The first wardrobe was made by God. The first wardrobe was given to Adam and Eve. There were skins of animal. Why did God have to do that? Because they sinned. And because in that rebellion, he had to shed the blood of the animal to cover over their sins and then take the skin of that animal to cover them. Once again, another prototype of Christ because in Jesus, we are clothed in his righteousness. So, Wife, when you look at your husband and you ask him, does this dress make me look fat? Here's the reality for men and women. All clothing makes us look sinful. All clothing reminds us that we are utterly and completely sinful and we desperately need a savior. May that be a good reminder to you tomorrow when you're getting ready for work, when you're getting ready for school, right before you go out, you know, you put on clothes. Not a one of us would dare walk out in the nude. I hope not. And so we would not do that because we put on our clothes. And as you get ready tomorrow morning, may this thought come to your mind. Jesus, thank you for clothing me with your righteousness. These garments, this three-piece suit, this bow tie, this dress, these high heels, whatever, these tennis shoes, these jeans, whatever they may be, this reminds me of my desperate need for Christ. And God in his love 
Not only clothed them, but he banished them from the garden. See, that doesn't sound very loving. Well, it was. Because, see, there was another tree in the middle of the garden. It's called the tree of life. And God says, if Adam and Eve reach out and touch that tree and take its fruit, then they will forever be in that state of mortality. And I love them too much to lose them. So he banished them, kicked them out, put a angel, cherubim, with a flaming sword so they could not get back to the tree of life. And that cherubim had one job. Do not let Adam and Eve get back into the garden of Eden. Do not let them get to the tree of life. They are forbidden for going into the tree of life and and reaching and touching its fruit. But my friends, I got to tell you, there is another tree of life. This first tree of life was found in the Garden of Eden. The other tree of life is found on a hill outside Jerusalem. This first tree of life, Adam and Eve were forbidden to go. This other tree of life, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve are invited to come and find life eternal. This first tree of life had hanging on it fruit that was forbidden. The second tree of life has hanging on it the faithful servant of God. Of course, the other tree of life I'm referencing is the cross of Calvary. And at the cross, at the cross, we find life everlasting. Let's come full circle and then we'll land the plane and sit down. Full circle, Revelation chapter 22. John is walking in that great holy city. And what does he see in Revelation 22? He sees the tree of life. It's right there in the middle of that great city. And John says, it yields its fruit every single day single month and there is no curse in that tree there is no curse in that tree it is the tree that promises life it's the tree that provides life it's the tree that gives life unto all who will believe in other words what I'm trying to say is that God had Jesus on his mind for what can wash away my sin nothing but the blood of Jesus what can make me whole again nothing but the blood of Jesus this is all my hope and peace nothing but the blood of Jesus this is all my righteousness nothing but the blood of Jesus oh precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other fountain I know nothing but the blood of Jesus so this has been on God's mind forever and you have been on God's mind forever and today if you are living a life independent of God Can I tell you, that will only bring you pain and destruction. Today, you can accept the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. How do you do that? We're going to sing a song. You come forward, take one of the pastors by the hand and say, I want life, not death. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian, but your spouse is not, your brother's not, your sister's not, your children are not somebody's on your mind, you come and you pray for them today, right now. Maybe somebody needs to come and join the church. Whatever it is you need to do, you respond in obedience. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Father, we thank you for being the God of life, that you bring life out of death, that you soften hard hearts and hard heads so that we can enjoy you both now and forevermore. So Lord, today I pray, if there's someone that does not know you as Savior and Lord, that today will be the day of their salvation. 
Thank you that you had Christmas and Easter on your mind from eternity past to eternity future. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.